The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. CRPD, when do we want it? Now. Here I am live in D.C., just came back from the Nickel Rally, hearing Senator Harkin and many other civil rights leaders speaking about getting CRPD passed. And I just want to say, because I told the senator I'd do this, everyone listening to the show, you've got to call your senator. You've got to call your senator. We have about five that are opposed. If you go to disabilitytreaty.org, you can read all about it. But you've got to make calls. You've got to get on that phone and say, CRPD, vote yes. CRPD vote yes. I expect everyone listening to make those phone calls. Trust me, it does make a difference, which I believe our guest will tell you who is, I just love this guest. I love her. She is here as we continue to celebrate in July, ADA month, the birthday, July 26th, throughout the month. All the way to the 31st, we're celebrating the month. Uh, we have a great civil rights leader. She was very involved with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Also a great advocate for the LGBTQ committee, community and commissioner at EEOC. And I always say, look out, she's a fireball. Look <laughs> out, she's going to fight discrimination. And she is a friend to all of us. Welcome, 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 Commissioner Heifeldblum. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Lovely introduction. Now, Commissioner, just so our listeners understand this, because, of course, you're in the federal government, doesn't it make a difference when people call their senator? Oh, it absolutely makes a difference. I had to stop myself, Joyce, from, from interrupting and saying, yes, yes, call um, because, you know, we, the Senate needs 67 senators to um, ratify the treaty. So it's not just a plain 51. You need 67 senators. And if this treaty gets uh, ratified, it will really send a message about how important the United States feels um, protecting the rights of people with disabilities around the entire world is. And we've been a leader in disability rights through enactment of the ADA and other laws, and this is really important in terms of establishing um, the U.S. at the table with other countries to make a difference for people with disabilities worldwide. Because sometimes uh, high people think their one phone call will not make a difference, but when you take time, when senators see you've taken time, that does make a difference. Absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is senators know that they are there to represent 
their constituents in their state. That's their job in a democracy. And so if you are calling from a state, I mean, you should call regardless, but especially if you go on to the website and see that the senator that the groups think could be a senator that would vote yes but has not yet committed to voting yes and you're from that senator's state, a phone call makes a real difference. Yes, and just so you know, as Senator Harkin just said, the opposition uh, in the community, when they talk to the senators, focus on three things. Number one is sovereign rights, which as Senator Harkin just said, come on. All the veterans group are behind this, but President George W. Bush, President George H. W. Bush, Senator Dole, Senator McCain, all Republicans, all behind this. And in no way, shape, or form is this going to be a problem with our sovereign rights, number one. Number two, this homeschooling. Where people got that, I have no clue. As Governor Thornburg, former Attorney General, when he testified, said, I've read this. In no way, shape, or form. Is this going to change any laws? And it's not going to have any impact on homeschooling. And number three, this whole fight about, uh, in Section 25, it talks about protection of women uh, and their reproductive rights. As Senator Harkin said, look, whatever women without disabilities are getting, (laughs) we want the same for women with disabilities. That's right. it. So remember, disabilitytreaty.org. Um, hi, I wanted to start today by telling our audience about your leadership at EEOC um, and what, what made you decide to be an advocate and actually work in that area. Well, I actually started working on disability issues in 19... 19- 87. Um, so that's, that's a bunch of years ago, um, and it was when I was clerking for Justice Blackman on the U.S. Supreme Court, and we had a case um, called Arline versus School Board of Nassau County about a school board that fired a woman with tuberculosis even after she had already you know, recovered from the contagious stage and was perfectly able to teach the following year, um, but they fired her. And so that was a case that came up to the Supreme Court under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And so this was in 1973 when Congress was reauthorizing various vocational rehabilitation programs for people with disabilities. Congress added a non-discrimination section. Um, Actually, they had three non-discrimination sections. Uh, The one that was at issue in this case was Section 504, that said that any entity that got federal money could not discriminate against people with disabilities. So that was my first um, connection and entree into disability rights law. Um, As a lesbian, I was also very aware at the time of so many people with AIDS who were being discriminated against, and this is the same law that protects them. 
And so that's what got me into disability rights. Um, at the time, uh, it was actually just a, shortly after that time that I was diagnosed with um, anxiety disorder, but I didn't even at that point uh, self-identify as a person with a disability um, because of that. that. That took some time afterwards. But that's what got me into disability rights, and then I was, as you mentioned, one of the um, folks who was involved in helping to draft and negotiate the ADA, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. I did that while I was a lawyer at the ACLU AIDS Project. And then many years later, in 2008, um, I was at that point a law professor at Georgetown Law School and on behalf of a disability coalition, I and my students helped draft and negotiate the amendments to the ADA, the ADA Amendments Act of 2008, that essentially restored the broad definition of disability that Congress had always intended. So my legal professional life has been around civil rights, around employment civil rights in particular, and with a specific focus on people with disabilities. So when I got a call from the White House in 2009 uh, asking if I would be interested in serving as one of the five commissioners of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the federal agency that enforces employment civil rights laws, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, among others, I jumped at the chance to provide sort of service and my energy and my brain to the rights of all people to be treated fairly in employment, um, including uh, people with disabilities. Well, you certainly have done a lot. And that brings me to one of our questions from Linda in New York City. And the question is, first of all, Commissioner, thank you for all you are doing um, I wanted to know, in your opinion, do you believe that discrimination is much less now for minorities? Do I think that discrimination is less now for minorities? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I could say <laughs> yes, but I see so much every day of what comes across my desk in terms of pretty blatant cases of discrimination, that it's hard to say yes. But, but here's what I can say. I mean, it's been 50 years since the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, next year, it'll be the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There is no doubt in my mind that we as a country have moved forward in terms of combating discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin, disability, age, absolutely. Things that would have been okay 50 years ago to do against black people, women, uh, Jews, Muslims, you know, anyone who wasn't part of the norm, things that were okay 50 years ago or 25 years ago, things that people could say about people with disabilities, that has changed. I mean, laws, but not just laws, changes in social culture, social norms, they have all worked together to have most people in this country understand what is acceptable and what is not. So in that sense, yes, it is 
less in the sense of less than the way it was before. But, I, like I said, I, I am shocked and appalled every day when I see the type of blatant racial harassment that goes on, the type of egregious sexual harassment that goes on, the type of blanket, I don't want to hire you because you have epilepsy, or I don't want to hire you because you have diabetes, or I don't want to hire you because you have cancer. I mean, you wouldn't think that this still happens, but it does. You know, the type of examples we see of, oh, you use a wheelchair? Oh, that's just going to be way too expensive for us in terms of ensuring that there's a ramp. Goodbye. I mean, it's, (laughs) I guess I feel there's still a lot more for all of us who are fighting in this area to do. But I certainly hope 50 years from now that it's a lot less than now. Me too, but it definitely is still there. I agree with you, no doubt about it. And I can tell you, just by questions company asked me, that it's still there. And this is Joyce Bender. We're talking to Commissioner Heifel Bloom. We'll be right back after break. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S. and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show, and we are talking today 
to Heifeld Bloom, Commissioner of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And I do have a question for you, Hi. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that when I talk to companies, but also people in general, there seems to be confusion between EEOC and OFCCP. And I thought it would be a good idea if you could share with our listeners what the difference is and how it works at EEOC. Sure. So the history of uh, passing laws and rules prohibiting discrimination against any number of groups have proceeded in the following way. First, Congress passes a law that says the federal government cannot discriminate. So whether it was race, sex, religion, disability, usually the first one is that the federal government itself cannot discriminate. The second thing, and sometimes it happens at the same time, Congress passes a law that says if a business is going to get a contract with the federal government, a contract to do something, then that federal contractor has to abide by a certain set of rules of non-discrimination and actually also adds and engage in affirmative action um, to advance groups people and groups that have historically been underrepresented. So that's something that goes to federal contractors. Then the, the Congress often says, if you get any type of federal money, like a grant, not a contract, but a grant, you also are um, bound by non-discrimination rules. And then the last thing that usually happens is Congress says, any employer or any business overall in the private sector may not discriminate on certain grounds. Okay, so that's the order usually. Federal government, federal contractors, recipients of federal financial assistance, and then the private sector. So in the area of race, that's what happened first. And when the government said that federal contractors may not discriminate and have to engage in affirmative action, they set up an office at the Department of Labor to enforce that provision to make sure that federal contractors were not discriminating. In 1964, when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and said that private employers could not discriminate on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin, it also created the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission a commission made up of five commissioners. Each of us have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And no more than three of us can be from the same political party. Okay, so for example, now we have three Democratic commissioners, two Republican commissioners. When there's a Republican president in power, there are three Republican commissioners, two Democratic commissioners. The idea is that this commission is bipartisan. And this The EEOC is responsible for enforcing the federal anti-discrimination laws in the private sector, right? Any business, any organization that has more than 15 employees is bound by these laws, and we, the EEOC, enforce those laws. Now, you can imagine a business that also has government contracts with the federal government, Or you can imagine an organization, a university, that also gets federal financial funds. So that type of business or that type of organization will have 
two different government agencies enforcing them. So, for example, if you're IBM, you're Boeing, you're whatever, you're some big company, and you have a government contract, individuals who feel they have experienced discrimination on the basis of any of those categories, including disability, can come to the EEOC to get help in terms of cases of discrimination. In addition, if they're getting these government contracts, the Office at Department of Labor, which is now called the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, OFCCP, Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, they will do um, yearly uh, audits of some subset of contractors. They'll go look at the contractor's records. If you're a government contractor, you have to keep lots of records about who applies for a job and then who gets the job. Um, So OFCCP basically is working at a very macro level, looking at the statistics of different companies. Does it look like they're not engaging in the affirmative action they need to be engaging in? EOC will do both the individual cases as well as class action cases that come to us. So from the, from the standpoint of the company, they have to deal with both EOC and OFCCP if they get federal contracts. They don't have federal contracts. They're just dealing with the EOC. So that would be, it would be possible for them to receive uh, fines, whatever you want to call it, from both groups. Right. Um, and, and here's the way it works. The OFCCP, uh, you know, the main enforcement mechanism they have is that they can recommend that the contract be yanked, mm-hmm. right, that there's no longer a contract. Now, that's very rare that they use that mechanism. Instead, if they find discrimination, they're likely to either settle with the company for some amount of money and some commitment to getting things better, or they can actually bring um, a suit and, and get, that rem- get those remedies. EOC, as it turns out, every single person, any person who feels that he or she has experienced discrimination on the basis of disability, let's say, has to come to the EOC first before he or she can go to court. I mean, that's just like a step in the process. So you have to come to the EOC. You know, if you have your own lawyer, then it's just basically a process where we investigate and, uh, and then potentially just give the person a right-to-sue letter, and then they go to court. In some cases, we will take them on ourselves, and then we can either settle with the company, again, for some amount of money and some commitment to changing practices, and in a small number of cases, we will actually bring a lawsuit against the, um, against the employer. So, for example, I just posted on my Facebook page, so I have a Commissioner Heifelblum Facebook page. I posted on that page and also on my Twitter feed, so just that's at Heifelblum, the list of 77 cases that just in the past year, I just went from the 23rd anniversary of the ADA last July 26, to this anniversary, and there were 77 cases that we had either resolved or um, filed in this past year on behalf of people with disabilities. Wow. And there were hundreds more, by the way, that we helped resolve 
before it ever get ever got to us filing a piece of litigation or someone's lawyer following if uh, uh, someone's lawyer filing a lawsuit. There were hundreds of cases where they just came in as charges. We investigated. We found reason to believe that discrimination had occurred, and we helped get remedies for those people with disabilities. You know, that is so great to hear, and I want people to understand that because um, years ago when, and this is a mutual friend of ours, Chris Griffin was at uh, EEOC as a commissioner, and there was some event going on in Pittsburgh where they were looking for a you know, really powerful speaker. And when I first mentioned, oh, Chris Griffin from EEOC, they looked at me and said, are you crazy? Why would you want EEOC around? (laughs) And I said, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. I mean, really, if you aren't doing anything wrong, what would it matter? Why Mm -hmm. wouldn't you want those groups around? Mm -hmm. Um, that always amazes me when people think that, uh, because really, you know, you're just there to help people. And uh, if you're doing the right thing, it should never be an issue. That's why I'm glad you explained all of that. Mm-hmm. But moving along here, we have a question from Sandy in Chicago. And it is, Commissioner Feldblum, I know that you also work in the LGBT community. My question is, is there any special outreach for gay women, lesbians with disabilities, because we get it the worst? Oh, I'm so glad you you asked that question, um, because, uh, I I mean, the fact is there's intersectionality across many grounds, right? You know, there are black people with disabilities. There are Muslim folks with disabilities. I mean, there's, you know, understanding the intersections is really important. And obviously, there are many lesbians with disabilities, many women with disabilities. So so I'll tell you a few things. Number one, I was very pleased that uh, about a month or so ago, the White House hosted the first ever joint LGBT and disability event at the White House. Um, And I kicked off that event um, by talking about um, many of the similarities I felt between the communities, um, the imposition by society of shame and stigma on characteristics that often can be hidden, right? I mean, my disability is hidden. The fact that I'm a lesbian is a hidden. I have to come out about both of those facts in order for people to know about it. And if society is telling you those characteristics are stigmatized, how, how many people do you think come out, right? So coming out is so important in terms of breaking the social norm perceptions of us. So I was very glad that there was that event because it brought people who have been working in each of these communities together. Um, and the best part of the event, I thought, was the schmoozing before and the schmoozing after and the connections that were made. So I, I think there should be training that is specifically focused on the type of intersectionalities that happen, whether it's LGBT and disability, religion disability, national origin disability, all of these things are important. And, and I think it's an, very important that there be um, folks who embody that intersectionality out there in public 
and making it clear how having both of these characteristics, whatever they are, um, sometimes just makes things even worse. So I, I, I'm a real believer in the importance of getting out that education. Yes, because I want to remind everyone, when I was talking about hidden disabilities, you all remember I'm living with epilepsy. And with epilepsy, there is a stigma. So you're right that, for example, a woman, lesbian, with epilepsy, it's like, oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean. But Mm -hmm. I want to remind everyone, I'm living with epilepsy, and I'm not ashamed nor should you be. Until we speak up and speak out, we won't be able to make those changes that we need to make. So, hi, you were talking about how you were involved with the ADA. My question is, when you were, how many roadblocks did you see? Because some people think there weren't, but I know there were, Mm -hmm. um, to get the ADA passed. Well, <laughs> there were lots of roadblocks, um, which is why anyone who wants to do political advocacy and trying to make social change through legislation, which is so important, that's the whole premise of a democracy, is that we as a people enact laws that we feel you know, better advance the society overall. But anyone who wants to do that type of work needs to have a lot of persistence and a lot of patience. I mean, it's just the reality. So, I mean, you know, on the positive side, people, uh, members of Congress uh, thought that, of course, you know, one should be, well, actually, they were mostly still working out of the charity pity mode towards people with disabilities. So first it was getting over that and saying, no, thank you very much. We don't need your pity. We don't need talks about how inspirational we are. We need our rights. You know, our our motto was, you know, don't give us your, we don't want your dimes. We want our rights. Um, so there was a roadblock in terms of making it clear why we were part of the overall civil rights community and the civil rights movement and that we needed actually rights for people with disabilities. But I would say then the second roadblock was just the complexity of it. Um, You know, it wasn't that it was enough to just say, don't take my disability into account, because sometimes we needed the employer to do something affirmative in order to allow people with disabilities to operate at their full potential. So it wasn't enough to just say, oh, we won't notice that you have a wheelchair if, in fact, you have steps in front of the building that the person is going to work at. So the concept of reasonable accommodation, even though it had been there in the law since basically 1975 in regulations implementing the Rehabilitation Act, we sort of had to teach Congress about that all over again. Um, and and that can be complicated. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, going back to your first point, Joyce, on this um, the opening of your show, telling people to call the senators about the treaty, COPD, that's what happened with the ADA. I mean, this was really tens, hundreds, thousands of people around the country calling their senators, calling their members of Congress, writing in about their stories that made it clear that we needed this protection. And it wasn't enough that government contractors weren't allowed to discriminate. 
It wasn't enough that the federal government wasn't allowed to discriminate. It wasn't enough that entities that got federal funds weren't allowed to discriminate. All of that we had gotten in, in the Rehabilitation Act. 501, 503, 504, those protections were there. But if you didn't fall into one of those categories, if you were working for an employer that was not the federal government, not a federal contractor, not an entity that got federal funds, you were not protected from discrimination. And that's what we had to change. And that's what Congress did change in 1990 when it passed the ADA. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. And to that point, as we are this month continuing to celebrate the 24th anniversary of the signing of the ADA, as you know, hi, President George H.W. Bush at the ceremony said toward the end of his speech, let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down. Mm-hmm. But it seems that no one listened to him about the employment part. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you think, you know, we have access to buildings, we have housing, education, but this employment piece, this one piece, we, it seems like we haven't moved the needle. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we have moved the needle in some areas, but not in others. So, you know, before the ADA, a private employer could ask before you got the job, fill out this whole medical questionnaire. And if you filled out that you had epilepsy or cancer or, you know, um, diabetes or heart disease, I mean, any of those things, you often just never got the job. And you didn't know why you didn't get the job. And with the ADA, employers can't do that. So without a doubt, there are some people with disabilities who are getting jobs now because of the ADA. Second, let's say you had one of these conditions and you needed to have some time off. You know, before the ADA, an employer could just fire you. Now, with reasonable accommodation, they have to see whether they can accommodate you. So for a whole group of people with disabilities, I think the ADA has made a difference in terms of the rate of their employment, keeping them connected to the labor force. But for people with more manifest disabilities, disabilities that the manager, the supervisor can see right when the person is interviewing, it doesn't matter that we say in the law, that's discrimination to take that into account, that's very hard to prove. It's just very hard to prove. So for people with more manifest disabilities, which tend to be the people that are captured in the data set that the government currently keeps, there has not been a a decent dent in their employment rate. And I believe that's because a combination, number one, because we have so much more training and education to do to get at people's stereotypes and myths and fears. Okay, so there's training. But number two, it's really about activating the affirmative action power of Section 501 that applies to the federal government, which is the largest employer in the United States, to say, no, you actually have to engage in affirmative action. You have, there's a certain aspirational goal 
of numbers of people with disabilities, including specifically manifest disabilities, significant disabilities that we want to see that you have achieved at the end of the year. So that makes a supervisor who maybe would have not taken someone who had a significant disability now feel like he or she should, if the person is qualified, can do the job, because there is this expectation under 501 that you are showing progress in hiring, and Section 503, which applies to federal contractors, and remember, federal contractors hire about 25% of the American workforce. So approximately a quarter of the American workforce works for companies that get contracts from the federal government. And there, unlike ADA generally, which simply has a non-discrimination um, element, which includes providing reasonable accommodations, but that's still just non-discrimination. Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, applying to federal contractors, require that they engage in affirmative action. And finally, after many, many years under this administration, the Department of Labor has issued regulations that make it clear this is what we mean by affirmative action for people with disabilities. We want you to be keeping records Who's applying? Who are you hiring? We want to see tangible progress in the hiring of people with disabilities by federal contractors. So I think, you know, I'm hoping that we will start to see a dent in the unemployment rate for people with significant disabilities through really strong enforcement of now the Section 503 regulations and the EOC is working on new regulations for Section 501 for the federal government so we can equally set out goals, aspirational goals for federal agencies to reach. You know, one thing you said I want to comment about, and that is that when I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I founded Bender Consulting Services in 1995, we made a decision that we would focus on people with significant disabilities, meaning someone that uses a wheelchair, blind, deaf, epilepsy, psychiatric disabilities, because we believed that the more significant the disability, the more difficult it would be to gain employment. Mm-hmm. Little did I know, so that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. And little did I know that this would be called targeted disabilities in the federal government. But Mm -hmm. I just want to tell you that is a fact. Um, And part of it, I'm sorry to say this, is based on seeing the person, you Mm -hmm. know, having them there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you go back to the history of disability rights all the way back to the ugly laws, freak shows, you know, Mm -hmm. let me count movies, Um, this is how people with disabilities are often portrayed. But those are people with significant disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said, the more significant, the more difficult it is. And I am hoping that this regulation I'm going to ask you about that you've mentioned, uh, Section 503 of the Rehab Act, is the game changer that will make a difference. Uh, what what do you think? What is your opinion? Oh, I totally think it has the potential to be a game changer. 
absolutely, because finally, I mean, Section 503 has been in the law for, you know, 40 years, 45 years, and I don't think government contractors really took it that seriously. Um, you know, they had to have an affirmative action plan for people with disabilities that wasn't particularly rigorous. So now, now there's real teeth in the regulations, but I think everyone knows even if you have something written down on paper, unless it's implemented well and understood well by companies and enforced well by the government, you know, it just sort of stays words on paper. So, um, I mean, I think we're off to a very good start in that the fact that there are these regulations. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that we've now, well, we started this about a year ago, and it was mentioned um, in the vice president vice president's job driven training report that was just issued a few weeks ago july twenty second so that maybe even last week um, specifically highlighted the fact that there is a group called curb cuts to the middle class initiative you know our point that the term curb cuts to the middle class came from Bob Williams. He uh, made it up because, you know, ladders of opportunity don't necessarily always work for people with disabilities. We need curb cuts. Um, So curb cuts of the middle class is designed to focus, number one, on people with significant disabilities, and two, making sure that people with significant disabilities have good middle class jobs, not just, you know, people assuming that you get low-paying jobs. And this is an effort of um, a number of agencies, so Department of Justice, EEOC, and the Social Security Administration are basically spearheading it, working with Department of Labor, Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, um, the uh, Veterans Administration. We are all working together in this Curb Cuts to the Middle Class Initiative And we have taken as our first pilot project, because our goal is to increase employment of people with disabilities all through the private sector. But as our pilot project, we are focusing on the federal contractors that employ 25% of the workforce. And we are doing lots of activities to ensure, number one, that people with significant disabilities are getting the training that they need training and education they need to compete for these jobs, and then helping to create connections between people with significant disabilities and the government contractors. So this is an interagency effort that is working on this, and I want to make sure that your listeners know that one of the um, important things that we are working on has to do with Bender & Associates because we're working with Office of Personnel Management to expand their shared list that's currently focused just for the federal government to be able to expand it out so that federal contractors can have access to it. But that's just one of several efforts. We have about six action items that we have working on designed to make the Section 503 regulations a true success. Let's, let's leverage that game-changing regulation to the fullest extent possible. And that is so great. You know, when you were talking about all of this, I'm thinking to myself, what a great day in America it is 
when I've had companies call me and say, Joyce, we want to meet with you because we want to hire people with disabilities, I'm almost shocked when I get the phone call because I'm accustomed all these years to calling saying, would you consider meeting me? And it seems like it's selling a jet plane how long it takes, you know, working with procurement in one company. So I know that it's going to be a game changer, that it is a game changer. Mm -hmm. And that's why, listen, anyone listening to the show right now, if you're a person with a disability, get that resume together, get sending that out to federal contractors, because 503 is definitely on the mind of people in human resources that work in compliance. Don't wait. I always tell people with disabilities, don't wait. No one's going to save you. You have to get out and do it. You have to do this. And um, you were talking about 501. You know President Obama signed Executive Order 13548 on July 26, 2010 Mm -hmm. to see federal government hire 100,000 people with disabilities over the next five years. Uh, why, Why do you think that's so important? Well, I think that's key, and you mentioned Chris Griffin before, so I want to talk a bit about the leadership that she provided, both at the EEOC. Um, I have the seat, you know, that that she had before, so both at the EEOC and then with this executive order. So when Chris Griffin was at the EEOC, she knew that Section 501 required uh, non-discrimination as well as affirmative action on the part of government agencies. And through various um, what are called directives, management directives, um, the EOC had communicated to federal agencies that they expected federal agencies to make affirmative um, actions um, to hire people with disabilities. And that's when, about 20 years ago, EOC and the Office of Personnel Management came up with this term, targeted disability, um, that you mentioned, Joyce. And basically, it was simply to say, Some disabilities, we just want to target for more focused attention because we think that folks with those disabilities are likely to have a harder time getting employed because if the supervisor or manager can see their disability or it's a psychiatric disability that um, the supervisor might be more worried about, um, that those folks are going to be have a harder time getting employed. So about 20 years ago, EOC and OPM, distinguished in terms of agencies reporting the hiring numbers between people with targeted disabilities and all other disabilities. So those were just in these management directives and agencies would report each year. Well, then Commissioner Griffin was very frustrated with the pace of change in the federal government. And so when she was the second in command at Office of Personnel Management, she and her folks worked with the White House to get this executive order issued that would literally, that would have a number, that would have a goal. Let's hire 100,000 people with disabilities in the federal government. The employer, the biggest employer in the country, let's hire 100,000 people with disabilities. And the way that was set up to work was that each agency had to report to OPM what it was setting as its agency goal, both for people with targeted disabilities and for people with all disabilities. Again, just to get the agencies to focus on 
people who have had more of a trouble getting employed, as well as all people with disabilities. And I have to say, I mean, under the leadership um, of the OPM directors, first John Berry, now um, Catherine Archuleta, and people like Veronica Villalobos um, at OPM, the federal government is, is doing a pretty good job in reaching the president's um, goal of 100,000 employees with disabilities. You know, a huge problem in the last, you know, we've, we had a period of two years where we had sequestration, we had, you know, budget cutting, so federal government wasn't hiring as much. But one of the things that became clear in terms of the executive order is we needed more than just an executive order. And we needed more than just management directives. We needed a regulation that would set out in detail for the federal agencies what we were expecting from them under Section 501. And right now, the regulation for Section 501 is just one paragraph. That's it. The entire regulation is one paragraph, and it says the federal government should be a model employer of people with disabilities. And that's it. So a year and a half ago, the commission announced that we would be issuing detailed regulations under Section 501, similar in a way to what Department of Labor did under Section 503. We were going to issue detailed regulations for federal agencies so they knew what they needed to do. And I actually think the combination of the executive order and the new Section 501 regulations will also be a game changer in terms of increasing the number of people with disabilities, including significant disabilities, who are hired by federal agencies across the country. And Chris Griffin, who you mentioned, I think so highly of, she made mm -hmm. a difference. She's oh, still yeah. making a difference, but I'm glad you mentioned her because she is someone that when she believed it, she pushed it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. Yes. So, hi. Before we end the show, I have a couple of last questions. Mm -hmm. And one that I want to know for sure is you have so much passion. You make things happen. You're brilliant. So you had to have a role model. Mm. And who was that role model? Well, in the area of disability in particular, I would say my first role model was Bob Williams, my Thing I mentioned before. So I met Bob when I was working on the ADA. And at that point, Bob was uh, severe cerebral palsy, talked only with a um, alphabet board. So he would point to um, uh, letters to then make out the words. Um, he now talks with a uh, machine, a voice machine. But I, I just think he just blew out of the water all the stereotypes about what people with severe disabilities could and cannot do. Um, you know, I know there are others in terms of, you know, from books and, you know, people written books, Stephen Hawkins, whatever, but Bob Williams for me was a real-life person that I met 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and just made a huge impact on me and continues to be a role model. I mean, I said that this Curb Cuts group, it, the leadership comes from Department of Justice, Eve Hill, EOC with me and Social Security with Bob Williams. So he and and he just generates memos and emails. I mean, it's just amazing and wonderful. So I would say that's one. I would say that another one, and this is um, someone who's younger than me, right? Came later in the movement, but 
Andy Imperato, when he was the head of AAPD, he was one of the first people that I knew who was just completely out about his mental disability, about mm-hmm. his bipolar. And I just, again, I had already self-identified as a person with a disability with my anxiety disorder um, earlier, but I, I think being watching him in various places really reinforced for me the need to come out if you have a hidden mental disability. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, six or seven years. But so, um, and then I would add Chris Griffin, you know. I mean, I would just add her as well because, again, I met her after 88 times, but she was just so kick-ass wonderful. How can you just not see her as a role model? And by the way, interesting, I just saw Bob Williams at that nickel rally and Andy Imperato. Ah. So as you can see, they are out there still fighting um, for the rights of people with disabilities. So, hi, if you had to leave a message with our listeners today, what would that be? That you can make change even as an individual person. You can make change. And in fact, it's only as individual people raising our voices, that change will happen. So for folks, for example, who do Twitter, and I think social media is a phenomenal mechanism for raising the voices of individual people around the country into one loud voice. And two young people with disabilities started the hashtag because of the ADA. They just started it on Saturday, July 26th, and... There, you go to that hashtag, and you will see people saying how having a law that prohibits discrimination based on disability has made a difference in their lives. But that's just the starting point. Laws are never enough. It's got to be changes in people's hearts and minds, and the only way to do that is by individual people coming out. They have a hidden disability succeeding if they have a manifest disability, just really making change in people's hearts and minds. And that's what I would say. You can make a difference. And, hi, I have a request. You know, we got so many people that are trying to reach us on Twitter, Facebook, is that we're going to have you back in October because we just didn't get to hear enough about employment. So is that a deal? That's a deal. All right, that's a deal. That's a deal. Uh, Well, on behalf of all people with disabilities, thank you for everything you do. And to everyone else, remember what I tell you, CRPD. When do we need it? Now. Let's end with a quote that, by the way, I saw everywhere today at this, the uh, rally, and that is, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, said Martin Luther King Jr. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com, CRPD, tell your senator yes now. Talk to you all next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.